Well, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Open Swim. I'm your host, Hallie Bram Kogelschatz, along with Brian Andrew Jasinski, Alex Knight, Coley Pizzoli. Yes, and Coley, while she is a longtime listener, first time participants. She is new to the podcast. So welcome, Coley. Thank you. Happy to be here. Excellent. Excellent. Do you want to tell the listeners at home a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Coley. I am the videographer here at Shark and Minnow, and I'm happy to be on the podcast today. My inaugural podcast. Big day. Well, again, as you probably can hear, we are still in isolation at Sharkamito. I'm actually recording live from the office today, but everybody else is still at their satellite offices as we continue to weather the storm that is the COVID-19 pandemic, which is part of what we're going to talk about today. Obviously, there have been a lot of changes in behavior, in consumer behavior, as a result of the pandemic. Alex has done some research on what trends we're seeing emerge thus far. But some of the things that we've noticed in our own lives, and certainly if you turn on the news, are trends that involve food and how we're changing the way we receive our food, we make our food, and what it really means to, as I always say, vote with your dollars and support restaurants that share your values so that you know as we emerge out of this crisis, your favorite places, the ones that make the biggest impact on your community won't be lost. As we jump into the episode today and we talk all about consumption, quite literally, I'm going to turn it over to Alex. Alex, why why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been finding in your research around food and consumption-based trends? So a recent food and health survey came out and it found that 85% of Americans have altered their food habits as a result of COVID-19. And the biggest subpopulation of that 85% is that 60% say that they're cooking at home more than they were before the pandemic. From a personal standpoint, and I, I'm sure you guys can probably weigh in a little bit here too, is I can definitely relate to that. And I would definitely be part of that 60% where definitely cooking at home more, eating out a bit less, and baking bread a lot more, and, and just experimenting in the kitchen, which has kind of been a fun like little hobby during this time. So I would definitely be part of this population. Have you guys also been cooking and baking a lot at home? Definitely. I just got a package yesterday and I didn't know what it was. And I was like, I don't think I remember ordering anything. And it was a giant bag of bread flour. So <laughs> yeah, that's definitely been happening for me. Do you feel like it makes you miss going out to eat less? Like the experience I feel like is so satisfying, but in a different way. Do you feel like it makes you miss going out to eat less? Like curbs that blow, I guess. A little bit, a little bit. I will say I have noticed that my wallet is happy that we're eating out less. But I will say, and, and I and I agree with you that the experience is, it's different, but it is like similar in that, you know, there's that satisfaction of cooking your own meal and all the work that you put into it and all the experimenting you've done. I will say another thing is it's not fun to have to clean up dishes every night. <laughs> so I am kind of missing a little bit of going out to eat. But I think for the for the most part, it's it's been a positive change, like just eating a little healthier, kind of being more conscious of what I'm eating, eating less like fried foods and massively produced or uh, over processed foods and things like that. So it's been a pretty good time, I think, because it's we've, you know, we bought some cookbooks, we've been watching a lot of YouTube videos, which I want to talk about of just like how to cook and and Coley, I know, like you've been watching out like a lot of Netflix shows and a lot of different like kind of documentaries and mini series about cooking. And it seems like that kind of industry is definitely capitalizing on this time where people are spending more time online, spending more time looking at cooking videos and how to videos and things like that. And I feel like I've noticed a few of the cooking gurus on YouTube that I follow, like Binging with Babish and, and Joshua Weissman. I feel like their subscribers and their views have just exploded over this past year, basically. There's something, and I, I love that you guys are talking about how it makes you miss going out to eat a little bit. There's something, and I think Brian brought this up when we were planning for this podcast, um, there's something that kind of recreates kind of the humanity, that person-to-person -person touch of actually making your own food and sharing it with whoever it is that you may live with, and just finding new ways to connect through food, which is one of the reasons that we wanted to focus on food today. You know, you always hear about change being made over 
over the breaking of bread. And quite literally, I think that's what a lot of home cooks are finding in their own kitchens right now is that, you know, when you do produce your own food in your kitchen and you're doing it from scratch in a, uh, a way that doesn't cut corners, there is joy in that. And being able to share that with others is really rewarding. I mean, I know personally, before the pandemic, it was such a great day at the firm when Coley came in and she had been experimenting with making her own gnocchi at home. And just like getting to, obviously it was delicious, but also getting to see like how excited she was to share that with all of us was like such it was just such a great moment. Like it feels so good to share something that you made with somebody else and and like it was a lot. It was intense. Yeah. <laughs> so Alex, it's definitely bread is a big thing. I mean, you obviously anyone who has been around and and not under a rock in the last few months has probably heard that one of the, you know, kind of pantry staples that was in high demand was yeast. It was a really hard item to find because there were so many home cooks and bakers that were experimenting with baking of bread and other baked items. And that really says something about what we're going through as a nation of home cooks right now. But what other things are you finding, Alex, in your research? Like as far as, yes, of course, we're, we're doing a lot more cooking at home, one would assume, but the, but the rate of that cooking at home is what I think surprised me because obviously there are still a lot of takeout options, but home cooks are deciding, you know what? Yes, maybe I'll do a little bit of that, but I really want to get back into the kitchen myself. So that percentage is what really surprised me. Were there any other things that you found in your research that were just popping off the page for you? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go back to the, the 2020 Food and Health Survey really quick. And then, yeah, I'll dive into a little bit of how YouTube numbers have changed in this kind of industry and this interest with people. So kind of at like a high level summary of the survey. So what it says is that cooking more at home is, not surprisingly, the biggest change that Americans have during COVID-19. But many people are also snacking more, washing produce more than usual, and thinking about food in general. And consumers under the age of 35 are most likely to have made changes, both in terms of healthier and less healthy choices. A couple other things is people pretty much across all demographics and ages are snacking more, especially parents. And that demographic of around age 35, people are snacking more because I think there's some stress factors there and just kind of dealing with the days. And then 43% of Americans say that they're on some sort of diet. And that's compared to 38% in 2019, and I believe 33% in 2018. So people at least are saying that they're more conscious about food and kind of taking it more seriously. What, whether that's true or not, of course, is, is left to be desired, but people are at least responding to the survey in a way that they're saying, hey, we're, we're paying attention to what we're eating. Just correlating all of these changes and people being more conscious about food and what they're putting into their bodies. You know, I wanted to look into um, YouTube, which is just a huge source of inspiration and really a place where I think people go to get motivated. I know I certainly do. YouTube released some numbers, and I think this was in May. So I would imagine the numbers are re relatively similar to, to today's recording, but how-to videos and quote-unquote mundane topics. The view time is up 600% since March 15th. Quote-unquote at-home videos have increased 700%. Quote-unquote with me videos are up 100% so they've doubled and then bread baking videos are up 260% I think I've joked with the team before that I'm, I'm probably about all of that percent because I've watched a lot of sourdough bread videos very stereotypical but also a lot of like bagels and just different types of breads things like that and it's been fun to experiment and, and kind of do that at home as opposed to going to the store and buying an expensive loaf of bread it's been fun to kind of experiment with the whole process and you know, creating like a sourdough starter and kind of feeding that and nurturing it. It's almost like a pet. So it's been kind of fun. But in general on YouTube too, like productivity videos are up. Home workout videos are up because people can't go to the gym and they need routines to do at home. So there's been an explosion of, of YouTube consumption over the past couple of months. And like I said before, people are just really, I think really just seeking some additional motivation, especially when people are up until recently pretty cooped up at home and, and feeling isolated. Alex, some of the research I did very much aligns with what you were saying, in particular, that idea of the relationship we have with food. I do think we were all collectively, as a world, forced to slow down and reassess. And, you know, I think the fact that people did begin cooking 
out of necessity, but also out of comfort at home again, really did create a, a cultural shift in a, and definitely a seismic shift in, in the way that we, what that relationship with food is. Um, you know, what you were saying about YouTube and workout videos, I, I found some interesting thoughts on the idea of how people are relating their well-being to food. Um, and what I thought was very striking was the idea that the search term weight loss diets fell sharply in March and April. So that's, you know, when lockdown truly began, according to Google Trends, people were no longer interested in the idea of these fad diets. Melissa Neves, who's a dietitian with Fad Free Nutrition, and that's based in San Juan, Puerto Rico, said, quote, I have definitely seen less talk and fewer questions about fad diets. I think people have rightfully put their attention on their protection, survival, and well-being during this pandemic. That also includes eating habits becoming more practical and less centered on what diet culture says we should or shouldn't eat to reach a socially constructed buying ideal, unquote. So she's saying that the fact that people are becoming more aware of evidence-based information rather than the, the quick fad or, or a quick Google search for you know health advice or a quick weight loss diet in advance of the summer, and really hoping that that this leads to people developing more of a positive relationship with food. I think people have realized that it's not something to be guilty of or certain foods aren't something that are forbidden. You know, it's the idea of going back to that thoughtfulness of, you know, like you said, instead of just going and buying something, but taking the time to source the ingredients. You know, Coley, to your point of, I remember you telling us the big difference that it made in your pasta when you, when you invested in a certain kind of flour. You know, so I, I think it's, that idea of all the every ingredient, you know, not looking at, at ingredients anymore as, um, you know, these kind of a collective whole that you simply put together, but the importance of, of the voice that each of those ingredients bring. So I think there's something really symbolic about that, um, the, the, the new sense of thoughtfulness and the elevated sense of consciousness that people are having in terms of like everything that goes into it and, and the effect that it has, um, not only on the, the dish and the flavor itself, but, you know, the... Um, you know, what it took to make it, make that. And I, and so I think there is a new appreciation, Chloe, you were saying missing going to a restaurant, you know, a new appreciation even of, of dishes that are prepared for you. Brian, I love that. And I think this is a totally different conversation, but I think that there are some good things there in terms of like mental health, people not obsessing over one like fad diet or worrying about their one gram of carbs over their daily intake levels and things like that. So I think that's a whole different topic. But yeah, I think people I'm speaking personally here, but I would imagine based on what you're saying, and based on kind of what I'm looking at too, is I didn't feel bad about eating the bread that I baked because I knew what I put into it. And I felt, you know, I felt kind of like wholesome about that. You know, I know I'm eating flour and things like that. And it might not be the best for me. But I know that I made it and I know exactly what I put into it. So I kind of feel more elevated and more kind of conscious about that consumption. And so I would imagine based on what you're saying, Brian, is that's probably how a lot of people are also feeling. Not to mention the fact that the baking of bread or the making of food is an active activity. And so I think when more people are getting up, getting active across the board, because they may not be sitting at a desk all day long, but you know, getting into the kitchen, I'm not sure if you're kneading your dough by hand, but obviously that's a very active part of the process. But it's not just about, you know, kind of picking up that loaf of bread and coming home and devouring it. It's about, you know, you've been an active participant in the making of it. And so it's not a completely sedentary act or a completely transactionary act by, you know, just bringing home a loaf of bread and eating it. I was also thinking about, because I haven't made bread, but I made like rolls and bagels or whatever. And it goes stale really fast because you are making it fresh and it's not like filled with preservatives. And I feel like after I made the bagels... And then I've been like, I'll buy bagels. I'm like, how are these still fresh? Like, this makes sense that this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, it lasts for a week and a half and it really shouldn't. Whereas, like, you make the fresh bagels, it's like the freshest thing you've ever tasted. And then a day or two later, like, it's done, you know? And it just makes you realize how many preservatives and things are in food that's not made fresh. I think that's one of the reasons why with some of the trends that Alex was looking into, it seems that 
you know, yes, some of this may be a little bit impermanent. People will go back to the office and it's easy to go out and grab your lunch or whatever the case may be. People like to go out to eat, myself included. I mean, all of us, it's such a social act, particularly when you live in a foodie city like we do. But at the same time, you know, it is eye-opening for a lot of people that don't do a lot of cooking at home, Coley, as you've said, to see, well, why, why is my food behaving differently than it normally does? And how might that change the way that I continue to consume certain types of food as a result. If you're eating for wellness, if you're eating for health, and you recognize that food's going bad very quickly, but that means that it's probably fresher and not laden, as Alex said, with a bunch of things that you don't know that, you know, what's going into them. It certainly changed your perspective about what you really want to put into your body for many people. So that is something that obviously we've got early results on how people feel about food and what they think they'll do when the, you know, when we kind of emerge from this very active phase of the pandemic. But obviously it remains to be seen. That's something obviously we'll be watching. I think another thing to your point, Hallie, about the act of cooking and baking being a physical act, which is, you know, you don't really think of it that way, but it is, you know, you're, you're, you're moving around and there's, you know, literally you're stirring, you're kneading dough, you're lifting things in and out. It seems simple, but it's truly, you know, it's not a sedentary practice as well as I would like to point out also it's very mental. You know, there's a lot of thinking that you're doing. There's a lot of learning that you're doing. You know, I like to both cook and bake, and I see the difference between the two of them. You know, baking and, and Alex, you've definitely embarked into the world of baking. It's I've always heard it. it's chemistry. You know, it's definitely a, there's a science to baking and how just, you know, there's been times I've, you know, there's cookies that I've made over and over. And I may, I remember there was one time I was out of uh, vanilla extract. And so I was like, well, I was already in the middle of it. I, I'll just, you have to do without it. And it's not just for flavor. I remember they, the overall you know, consistency of the cookies was dramatically changed. You know, so I, I, it's fascinating. The idea of the chemistry of, of baking and the, and the balance of cooking, you know, so they, it's very much a mental thing and you're making strategic moves as all part of that process. So it is very much an engaged, that's what it is. I think it, as we said, it's very meditative. It's meditative and active at the same time. You know, it's almost like you're, um, you know, on the sports field, right? You're having to react to, you know, maybe something changes or something might have been on the burner too long. Like, how do you adjust that? It's all about that thinking. And I think it comes back to, you know, what I was saying earlier, the thoughtfulness. I think people are also, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, we all know those grocery shelves were empty. And so I think you know, something that we took so for granted, the ability to just run to the grocery store, you know, sometimes every day after work if you needed to. There was that temporary inconvenience of the grocery store was a daunting place to go. There wasn't a lot there. It almost was kind of this, there was this primal instinct of people were in a sense hoarding things that they didn't need to be hoarding. It's allowed us to get back in touch with how we access our food and, and our food system. You know, Shark and Minnow, we're, we're obviously, we're very well versed and, and very um, familiar with the idea of the transportation and logistics system throughout our country. But I think it's allowed people to get, to be more aware of where does their food come from and what is that food chain? There's been more of a, a consciousness of the importance of grocery stores. You know, the fact that grocery workers are considered frontline workers, thanking them, thinking more about that food supply chain and that connectivity too with uh, local food and farmers, especially pandemic where we were going right into spring and now here we are in the summer. You know, the, this is the highlight of the year in terms of farmers market. So the fact that I think it's made people realize that food doesn't magically appear on these shelves, you know, and that there are people and there are workers that are involved and they're they're being recognized for for this role in, in our wellness and in our ability to to eat day to day. And I think people are being more conscious about getting, you know, their fruits and their vegetables and, and their dairy from local farms and, and supporting local businesses. It goes into that whole the ability and that the even more elevated consciousness of supporting local and supporting small businesses. You know, I think food has been such a symbol of so much, you know, of economy and supporting small businesses and reconnecting and what we're eating. You know, it's truly can be seen as this interesting nucleus of, of the pandemic is, is food. There's no doubt. So Alex, what else have you come across? So Brian, I love what you said about the transportation and logistics and kind of behind the scenes of, of how food gets to our shelves, because I think you're right. People, and I definitely take for granted how food gets to our shelves and the simplicity of walking to my grocery store. 
or ordering online and then the food is just there or it appears at my doorstep a couple hours later or the next day or whatever it is. And I think that the COVID-19 pandemic has really shed a light on the global supply chain and also like just the very local supply chain of how food gets to, to our plate, basically, from a global perspective and also just a national perspective, supply chains and, and food supply chains have been compromised with COVID-19, lack of workforce, safety concerns, regulations, things like that. Things have been compromised. And I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there were lots of empty shelves at stores and people were hoarding and people were, you know, just very scared. It's not so much like that anymore, but a large part of that was due to the supply chain. And it kind of sheds a light on like just how interconnected our country and our, our globe is as an international community with how food gets to us. Doing some research and, and just some assumptions I was making and by doing some research, which I can kind of back up these assumptions, I think that there will be a shift for consumers to consider at least and, and buy more locally sourced products and at least support more locally based grocery stores. So I think people, you know, really want to know where, quite simply, know where their stuff is and where it's coming from. I've noticed a lot on, on packaging of some foods lately that it tells you where it comes from or it's like sourced from here. And I think that's nice from the consumer standpoint because you have a sense of, okay, this is coming from across the world or you know, it's coming from just a few miles away at a, at a local farm. I think shopping locally and have, buying more local goods, you know, people, th that product is physically touched less and with you know people being very conscious of touching and social distancing i think that's going to be a big motivating factor at least in the short to medium term of course buying local has a multitude of, of positive environmental impacts which i think could be a whole nother podcast episode and then i think just supporting local business and especially in these times of hardship kind of viewing the local baker the local grocer really people i think will start viewing that as a as a true community asset and not just a resource, but they'll, they'll consider it an asset and want to support them more. And so doing a little bit of research, so a recent global survey from Ernst & Young found that 42% of consumers believe the way they shop will fundamentally change as a result of COVID-19. And 34% indicate that they would pay more for local products. So I've, I've noticed that too, like, you know, speaking personally, there's a small local grocery store in walking distance, about a two minute walk from my apartment, which is super convenient. And I'll go and buy um, vegetables and things like that there because I know they're probably getting them from a relatively local source. It's quick and easy. And sometimes it's cheaper than going to like a Whole Foods or, you know, going to a Giant Eagle, for example, but sometimes it is more expensive. And honestly, I don't feel that bad about it because I'm supporting them and I want them to continue because they, I do, they're super convenient for me and I want them to be there and I view them as an asset. So have you guys, since, since we've been working from home and since COVID-19, since March or so, have you guys, you know, kind of shifted the way you're buying groceries or, or buying products in general? Certainly. I think I, I feel like I don't want to keep using that word thoughtfulness, but I think it is more pre-planning than ever because of the fact that going to the grocery store, you know, I've said, I'm personally somebody who's always loved grocery shopping. I know a lot of people, it's, for them, it's a, it's a dreaded activity, but it's something that I've enjoyed doing and, you know, I take my time, but now it's so transactional in a sense, right? Because especially in the beginning of the pandemic, it was almost a competition, you know, because as we were saying, the goal of finding things that might have not have been available, or you were hearing about the day that, you know, new produce was coming in and there'd be a line out the door because people knew that that was the day, you know, so suddenly it became this strange competition just to simply go grocery shopping. So I think what I've done is it's, I'm doing a lot more planning in terms of what I'm eating for that week and what I plan on making for that week, you know, so that it, it's to equate less trips. You know, I will admit I'm somebody who, as I was saying earlier on my way home, I would be stopping at the grocery store several times a week, you know, based on like, cause I would kind of think during that day, like, oh, maybe this is what I need or this is what I'm going to make this weekend. You know, so I definitely would make several trips, whereas now that's not as much conducive to the current environment that we're in. And let's be honest, it's, it's a place that you don't want to expose yourself to as often as we once did. There's a, a strange, you know, the, in this world that we find ourselves in, it's almost this weird dance, you know, with people, you know, everybody's, I, I keep saying everybody's very conscious of, of each other. You know, there's this weird, out of necessity, you know, we have to keep this distance. So there's just, a, there's just a different tonality to an activity such as grocery shopping. So I think, you know, to answer your question, I, I've done a lot more, which I'm sure is the case for many people, just planning so that my trips there are, are more limited. This is another trend. And Hallie, I know this is something that you are have always been passionate about, but that idea of 
reducing food waste. There's crazy figures out there, the amount of food and milk, any sort of perishable foods, the, the amount that has been thrown away or, or, or poured down the sink is greatly reduced. They're actually saying that, you know, 50 to 70% of food waste before the pandemic came from home kitchens alone. So I think people are being a lot more conscious of reusing leftovers. And I think people are being a lot more thoughtful about like stretching their food out again, out of both monetarily, as well as just, again, it goes back to that thoughtfulness of, of what and how we're eating. One of the reasons people are getting so creative in the kitchen is because of scarcity. And this goes into sort of the the transportation, the logistics challenges, as well as some other factors that have been presented by the pandemic. Namely, we saw early in this last few months, we saw that there were a number of workers that were getting ill that worked in meat processing plants. And so at the beginning of all this, there was a fear that there was going to be a meat shortage. And I think a lot of people started like, you know, I know a lot of people that are heavy meat eaters that started going to the grocery store and stocking up on a few extra packs of ground beef or chicken or whatever and putting it in their freezer just in case that came to pass. And they're saying that to some degree it has come to pass. I've heard anecdotally that there are a lot more people that are trying options like the Impossible Burger and things like that as a result of having more time in the kitchen trying to perhaps reduce their meat consumption because of scarcity or because of cost. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how many people, you know, make changes to their, you know, to their dietary, um, changes to their diet as a result of all of this. On a corporate level, you're seeing a number of fast food chains actually experiment with meatless nuggets. And obviously the Impossible Burger was something that was happening pre-pandemic. But now you're seeing some of that happen because it's a reflection of what's happening, I believe, in people's home kitchens. And the fact that people are more ready and willing to accept plant-based options if they feel that the taste is there and the experience is similar. Well, I think, too, like that consciousness, like more conscious eating, I feel like has been elevated a lot, maybe over the past like five or 10 years. And now the difference is, like you were saying, the amount of time you may have been flirting with the idea or it may have been getting closer to your radar about eating more consciously. But now some people might have the time to actually like explore that further. And I think the economics of it are a big factor. I mean, we're also dealing with one of the highest unemployment rates in our life, my lifetime, certainly. And that includes two additional recessions. And when that happens, I think people are more willing to make changes to kind of test their brand loyalty, if you will, than they are in solid economic times. And so, Coley, I totally agree. They have the time. They may have a, a reason, a real tangible reason that they need to reduce their grocery bill. And in this case, that makes plant-based foods a perfect item to add to your list. Thinking more broadly, I was looking at this research done by Accenture, and they broke this out into a few different categories. But one that was pretty striking to me was the social impact of the COVID-19 outbreak. And what they found through this research is that 80% of consumers feel more or as connected to their communities as they did before, and that 88% of consumers expect these connections to stay intact long after the virus is contained. So people care about their communities, people care about buying local, and that seems like it's not going to go away according to this research. So that it brings me to the question of how are big brands, how are big box retailers, how are they going to adapt to this? And one example I can think of now is Target. And I, I don't know if every single Target does this, but I'm pretty sure the one on the east side by Shaker Heights does. They have a section like that highlights local products. And I think that's a really cool way to kind of connect that you know big brand, that national retailer to the local community. They could probably do more. They could probably buy more local products. But I think that's a really cool thing that Target does. They don't have to do that, but they do. And it's kind of like they're kind of investing in the local community and showing that they care. So I'm wondering, what else do you think, you know, big brands should be doing or can be doing looking into the future to, to relate to this trend of people really caring about their local producers? Well, Alex, I think one thing that you've brought up on the in past podcasts is that we could be doing a better job as a corporate community of using technology like blockchain. I think if you were employing that type of technology, it would be a lot easier for retailers to say, this is exactly where your goods have come from. This is how they were produced. And it gives a much better peek behind the curtain into what you're actually buying. And I think it's a thing that consumers 
over the last, I would say, decade have become much more interested in. But because of this pandemic, I think that consumers are going to be paying a lot more attention to. And if they know that it's making an impact either on the community that they live in, or it's making an impact for a group that they're a part of, the kind of classic example I can think of is the box tops for schools kind of program that's been on on cereal boxes and crackers and snacks and whatever forever. But the idea that you could benefit schools or you know, at the grocery store that I often shop at, you have the ability to designate a school to be the beneficiary of a percentage of your spend so that you can give back with each purchase. I think technologies like blockchain and localized give back programs are going to become a much bigger part of how marketers can win, how retailers can win, to really show that whether they're a local business or a franchise, or an outpost for a national or international brand, showing that they really are a part of the community in a meaningful way is gonna be critically important. So I think an interesting thread between everything that we've been talking about so far is the fact that how reflective food is of the state of the world. If you look at any community, their approach to food is so telling of the state that they're in. And we're obviously in such a unique time with COVID. And it's interesting how the food has been like so reflective of that. And it's very much there to tell the story of what's happening. So I've been doing a little bit of research on organizations that have taken a creative approach in difficult times to create social change through food. So I'm just going to talk through a few case studies. So the first guy that I was researching is Ron Finley. He's gotten a lot of notoriety at this point. Has anyone heard of him? He's so awesome. And I have to say my six-year-old is like obsessed with his masterclass video. The origin of his story is really interesting. So he is from South Central LA and he grew up in the areas of there his whole life. And he was thinking about the fact that it's so difficult to get fresh food in that area. And then you go to Beverly Hills, which is like not that far away. And there's all this access to fresh food and grocery stores and all these things. And he's sitting there thinking like, why is this like this? You know, why can't my community have access to this food? What we have access to is fast food and liquor stores. And, you know, I was watching an interview and he said it's by design. It really is like a result of systemic racism. And so his approach was like, if this is by design, I'm going to change the design. So his idea was to start planting gardens in parkways in South Central LA. So he started with like this parkway outside his house and put in this like beautiful garden on this like little strip of land in this parkway and started growing food. And the purpose was also like people would come by and just take food whenever they wanted. So eventually like he actually got in trouble for it. So somebody like told on him because at the time it was illegal to plant gardens in these patches of land. And he was really upset by it because he was like, you didn't care when there was trash on the ground and there, those that land was not being taken care of, but when it was, then you care. So the LA Times ended up picking up a story about it and he eventually got, a, the law changed in LA that you can plant gardens in those parkways, which wasn't the case before. So his organization basically goes in and plants free gardens with fresh food in these communities. And it's taken off into like this massive, massive movement. And his thing is like, I can turn anything into a garden sort of thing. So in his masterclass, he has like, you can take an old drawer and he'll show you how to make it into like a garden that grows food. And it's super incredible thing. And in an interview, he was saying, he said, growing your own food is like printing your own money. And his whole movement is like the power that you can possess by being able to control that narrative of the food that you put in your body and the health that you provide for yourself outside of the system that's not providing any of those resources. And he said, gardening is the most therapeutic and defiant act you can do, especially in the inner city. So I think that's really cool and it's really creative and it's just a way to regain autonomy over the sources of the food that you're eating. He's really unbelievable. And one of the reasons that I am such a big fan of his is as somebody who does a lot of gardening, I love how simple he makes it for people and like demystifies like the process of 
of becoming a master gardener. I think it's really intimidating for a lot of people to like pick up a shovel and like, what do I do with this? And where do I get my seeds and how far down do I have to plant them? And like, essentially like there's a lot to take into consideration to be successful in a garden. And he makes it so simple to just say like, hey, get out there and try it. And like, there are some very easy tips and tricks to get started and like start with something small and simple and think about how you can grow it from there, literally. I mean, it's easy enough that with his master class, my six-year-old watched it and was like able to completely understand and was like enraptured with him, just wanted to go out and like garden right away. And I think it's so important to take the stigma out of gardening and also make it like a very inclusive act. When you close your eyes and you think of like a a person who's a gardener, like you have this very specific visual and he wants to open that up to everyone. I also love that in his masterclass, he describes compost as gangster, as bleep. I love composting. I think that that's the piece that gets left out of the gardening conversation so often, but it's the easiest way to connect your kitchen to your garden and make it a cycle and make yourself successful. And so I think that, you know, just kind of letting people start to think about the circle of that food's journey and how it's all connected and not have food be a thing that just lives in the kitchen, like connect you back to the land where it's grown, like is so powerful. It just gives you so much agency as a home cook. And he he talks about how like, it's not like you have to have five acres of land to be successful when it comes to like gardening, you know, there are so many ways that you can do it on a small plot and still produce a huge yield of food. From just learning a little bit more about him and South Central LA, he said that there is enough vacant lots in South Central LA, the equivalent of 20 central parks, which is crazy to think like that's a food desert and you have all this land. And it's just a, it's just a, a skill that a lot of us don't know. Listening to him talk immediately makes me feel like, oh my God, like why aren't I gardening? Why aren't I having the spiritual experience? And he also t- talks about the spirituality of it and how much you can just learn about your life, yourself, the world through plants and vegetables and strengthening your body, strengthening your mind. And it's really it's really infectious to hear him talk about it. It really makes you want to garden ASAP. Another really, really interesting story that I found was about this guy named Sean Sherman, and he's known as the Sioux Chef. He grew up in the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, and his whole mission is essentially to decolonize the native diet. And through my research, I was thinking about the fact, I know for myself personally, and a lot of Americans, we're not familiar with indigenous cuisine, even though they occupied areas as far as 80% of North America, which expands, obviously, like think about all the cuisine in America and 80% of the land and the terrain that influence that food. That's so much variety and so much information about food that we just, as an American culture, don't, I don't know a lot about. It's like I can name Italian food, French food, Mexican food, but I really can't name a lot of indigenous dishes. I would absolutely agree. I think it comes into, you just said too, is that whole idea, there's such a trend with restaurants and it'll say modern American or classic American. And what exactly is that? Because I, I do think our food is such a melting pot of different influences and cultures and, and the way that it's been adapted over the generations. So I think it's a striking thought to think, oh, well, what is Native American food? You know, and so I'm curious to, to, to understand further what you've learned through this research on him. And his whole goal is to bring indigenous food and how delicious and special it is to the forefront and health is a huge pillar of what he's doing and spreading that like heritage and information and reconnecting with this food that's like really special so what are some of the initiatives that you find he's leading it's a nonprofit that he has set up so he's teaching a lot of people stuff about permaculture native american agriculture seed saving hunting fishing butchery cooking techniques food preservation all these different things and another really cool thing that he did is write a cookbook called the sous chef's indigenous kitchen and he was saying in an interview like if I want to look up indigenous dishes I can't just go and buy any cookbook on indigenous dishes there's not a ton of books out there that exist so he published this book and it actually won in 2018 the James Beard Award for best American cookbook which is really really cool 
the cookbook advocates Native American cuisine, indigenous ingredients, and ancestral culinary techniques. And it was interesting to hear him talk about, so he grew up on the Pine Ridge Reservation, and he was saying the foods that he grew up on were really, really processed food that's really bad for you. And the reason is because of indigenous people being removed from their own land and landscapes that they know and their location and stripped away from their resources and all these horrible things. Eventually, I don't, I, I don't know the full details on this government program, but it's essentially a government program that gives food to reservations. But the food that they're giving is super unhealthy. I think it comes down to a conversation we've had where, unfortunately, eating healthy is equated with a monetary status. So to eat healthy and have access to healthy food and produce and organic, it's more expensive. So it's unfortunately seen as luxury as opposed to a human right to be able to eat healthy and eat eat well. And so it's, it sounds to me like what he's doing through the initiative of, of his book and his teaching is allowing people to reconnect to these Native American recipes that are so based and living off the land and, and growing your food and hunting your food. Yes, exactly. And it's just thinking about like how connected indigenous people were to their land and how much knowledge they had of the land, growing, agriculture, all these things. And then being removed from your own land and then be, being it replaced with the polar opposite, you know, this like super unhealthy food. And take that, that beauty of the food and the, and the experience of, of their connection to the food and the land being literally taken away and, and replaced with something that's completely the opposite. Right. Yeah, it's really amazing what he's doing. And I think it's like through what we've been talking about this podcast, thinking about the idea of like how much storytelling is involved in food and how much the way that you're framing the conversations about food can dramatically change your entire life and, and your perspective and the pride that you have in something and the the amount that you're willing to give your energy and yourself to something and it's like we are sustained by food that's what makes our bodies run and I feel like American culture is a lot of times like we're we're that consciousness is very low you know because we get things quickly and we're not thinking about like we were talking about earlier like where is this really coming from and what what am I doing to create this so yeah I think it's that is super exciting and super something that hasn't been on my radar to be honest and I I, I want to buy this book I'm like really really curious about it so the last organization that's really caught my attention lately is called Ghetto Gastro. Ghetto Gastro is a culinary collective in the Bronx, and they describe themselves as an intersection of art, design, culture, activism, fashion, and it's all through the medium of food. So again, like, you know, dovetailing off these other organizations, you know, the idea of how food can spark a conversation. And what's like really cool and infectious about them is like, it's hard to quantify like exactly one thing they do. So it's four people that started this organization, three of the four professional chefs that make really incredible like high end food. But their organization is based in the Bronx, and they decided to keep their talent and creativity and all this stuff and like really rooted in Bronx pride and their motto is kind of bring the world to the Bronx and bring the Bronx to the world. It's definitely like a really talented group of guys that could do stuff anywhere but they're from the Bronx and they want people to see the magic that goes on in the Bronx and they also have website, they have videos, they have pop-ups all the time and they're just sharing and it, it's really an intersection of food and art. But they describe themselves as a black power kitchen, which I think is really cool. And they'll provide like programs for the community and just bring people into this conversation of producing beautiful, sometimes healthy. Some The healthy element is definitely part of it. It's not like the main thing. It's more like creating beautiful food, however that comes out. But it's really cool right now because they are doing something during COVID, they teamed up with this nonprofit called Rethink, and it collects food waste by restaurants and turns it into meals for New Yorkers. So they teamed up to provide emergency food for the Bronx. And obviously, like, COVID is hitting New York City so hard and heavy. So they wanted to do something. And they've already served 35,000 meals, and their effort is to surpass 75,000, which is pretty amazing. And they are selling t-shirts and merch and stuff to raise money for 
COVID related relief as well. And the shirts say food is a weapon, which I think is sort of the the anchor of all these organizations that we're talking about. Like food can be a lifesaver and a killer, you know, it just has this kind of power. And in an interview, someone asked like, why, why is food is a weapon? on your t-shirt and he said because it is the truth there are many battlefields of systemic oppression there's white supremacy capitalism and there's a war in our bodies we've been able to see the impact of that war in a way certain people have disproportionately affected by covid this is especially true in my hometowns of the bronx it has been hard seeing the people who have underlying health conditions that are a result of poverty taken away. So yeah, food is a weapon. It goes alongside police brutality, all of these other means of white supremacy that afflict black people. Their mission is very social. It's very they're very vocal, they're very real, and they're very like infectious and funny too. Like they're they're a group of friends that clearly have been friends for a long time. So like all their videos are really fun to watch and stuff. And during COVID, they've been like highlighting all these different chefs on their Instagram live, which has been really fun to see. They recently teamed up with Massimo Batura to create these beautiful food kitchens in the Bronx. And so they're just doing all kinds of stuff. And I think it's another great example of how you can just elevate your voice through food and elevate communities and instill like pride and creativity and all these amazing things. I think what's interesting, what they're doing is the fact that they are taking the base platform of the fact that they are a caterer in a sense, but they're, they're redefining that and bringing in that intersection of, of fashion and, and music and film and, and visual arts. And they're creating these events. And I think what it, to your point is sparking these larger conversations around inclusion and race and empowerment and economic empowerment and through this lens of COVID-19, you know, the fact that we've been saying this all along, with food becoming the, the nucleus and, and such a, a center point of, of the experience that everybody's going through, it's like they're perfectly suited in a sense to, to, in terms of, of the stage that they've created. I believe it's a, when were they, they were established in 2012, I believe. It really is, I think, in terms of their initiative and, and what they have defined as their platform is it's custom made for the situation that we're currently in. The fact that they don't have a brick and mortar restaurant there, they don't necessarily have a trendy food truck with their logo on it. This article that I read um, when I was researching them based on our conversations, Coley, was the fact I love it says ghetto gastro exists mostly amongst the people. They aren't just chefs, they're cultural ambassadors. And I think right there that describes what the power of food is. Food is a gateway to other cultures. It's a gateway to different traditions and I and more than ever a world that is more and more divided is that idea of that breaking of bread it's such a symbol and the power that food has it's unprecedented it is it's so it's amazing really when you think about how truly powerful food is it's just the story the story of our lives that it tells is is unbelievable it's like the deeper you dive in it's just never ending My bigger boat is a farm in Minnesota called Dreams of Wild Health, a farm that's providing educational programs that reconnect Native American communities with traditional Native plants and their culinary, medicinal, and spiritual use, much like what Sean Sherman is doing. But what's really cool about this farm in particular is that they have these very special seeds with a really special story, which is during the Trail of Tears, when Native Americans were forced to move to different areas, women would take seeds that they had been using to grow food in their communities, all these things, and sew them into the, the hems of their dresses. And a lot of times, like, in, in haste, like, in, in moments, where that's how they acted quickly, and they sewed these seeds in the hems of their dresses, so that wherever they were going, they could grow food and know that they would be able to be nourished. And so this farm has some of those seeds that have been passed down and delicately saved and fought for and preserved through hundreds of years. 
and this farm has some of these seeds and is growing some of that really, really native food. And I just think it's so interesting and so powerful thinking about like that story of food and that history and like what it takes for that seed to get where it is today just like really makes you think about how powerful food is. And I just, I think what they're doing is, is really special. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes to Joshua Wiseman, whose YouTube channel has inspired me to do lots of cooking, everything from chicken, steak, vegetables, and he's even inspired me to get into bread baking, especially sourdough bread baking. Thanks, Josh. Today, My Bigger Boat goes to Cincinnati-based grocer Kroger. Through their Zero Hunger initiative, Kroger has aimed to have as much food as possible fulfill its highest purpose, and that is to feed people. They have found that directing just one-third of the food we all waste to people in need would feed everyone struggling with hunger in the U.S. today. Kroger focuses on several key priorities to help make this happen. For example, their food rescue program through Zero Hunger, Zero Waste. They encourage innovation by testing new ideas and technology that redirects healthier food to individuals, families, and pantries in need. They actually have a really interesting customer insight and analytics team that they call 84.51 degrees, which aids in pinpointing exactly where help is most needed. They align their charitable giving by directing their grants to organizations and causes that help end hunger in communities. And they engage their customers and partners by offering ways for both their customers and their supply partners to join in their mission. As mentioned earlier in the podcast, there has been a collective consciousness and a renewed respect for the grocery industry and those who work at grocery stores. They truly are frontline workers. They have allowed us to find a sense of security, I think, in this upside down world that we are all currently existing in. So I send my bigger boat to Kroger and to all groceries, big and small, out there allowing us to break bread around our collective tables. We say thank you. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to all of the kids as well as teachers and administrators that are going back to school in the incoming weeks. You have shown such ingenuity and resiliency, and we are so incredibly thankful for all of the educators that are doing what they need to do to make sure that our children get the education that they need, whether that means in person or in a virtual environment as we embark on the new school year. Thank you for all that you do, and please be safe, and we're thinking of you. Thank you. This episode is in support of World Central Kitchen, who is providing food and resources to so many in our communities that need it at this critical time. Learn more at wck.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Tacone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey. 